Welcome to another edition of Inside of the War Room. Ryan Ray here, as always, and today's guest is a guest I've wanted to get on for uh, quite some time. We've been working on this in the background. Um, as he released a book, it looks like March 19th of this year. I didn't realize it had been that long. I'm talking about an energy analyst, expert, guru extraordinaire, Omid Shoki. Omid, it's great to have you on. How are you doing today? Yeah, thanks for having me, and I hope you have a great discussion about my book and about the energy geopolitics around the world. Yeah, well, okay, so your book is titled, and we'll link to this in the show notes, it's called U.S. Energy Diplomacy in the Caspian Sea Basin. That's a yeah. very almost specific title um, for those who may aren't familiar with this area of the, of the world. Why don't you break down what area exactly you're referring to and why is it so important? Yeah, it's a very good question. You know, uh, uh, during Bush administration, the U.S. import about 70% of oil from the Middle East, and it is not, uh, as you know, diversification of energy resources is a key actor in every country energy policy. At that time, uh, Bush administration and his uh, uh, energy secretary of energy and other uh, national advisor for national security advisor for White House came together that they think that importing 70% of oil from the Middle East is against U.S. national security, and they trying to find the alternative uh, for, for the Middle East, and they focused to uh, uh, Caspian Sea as an alternative, one of alternative for oil from the uh, Persian Gulf and uh, Middle East. Before the Bush administration, as you know, during the Clinton administration, when uh, uh, Soviet Union uh, uh, breakdown. Uh, U.S. tried to help these countries to recover their economy, tried uh, try to independence from the Russia, and tried to bring oil and gas from this region without using uh, influence, without using infrastructure, and without using uh, energy resources to bring market, mainly EU market, due to U.S. Uh, during uh, Clinton administration and Bush administration, mainly focused to Central Asia and Caspian Sea. As you are aware, during Bush administration, U.S. Uh, has to uh, um, military operation in Iraq and Afghanistan, and U.S. uses a uh, military base in the Central Asia and also Caspian Sea to support and to send the uh, military weapons and troops to uh, Afghanistan to support their troops in the uh, region. Now, due to this condition, uh, oil import from the uh, Middle East and U.S. present in the region, especially in Afghanistan, the U.S. focused on uh, Central Asia and Caspian Sea, and I try to focus this um, topic, what's the uh, uh, Bush Obama, Trump, and Biden administration policy toward the in, uh, international um, energy market in general, and especially toward Caspian Sea. Okay, yeah. So you cover you covered a lot, a lot of ground there. In in the book, you have, I believe, it's um, nine different areas. Uh, is that right? Nine different areas that you wanted to work through um, in the book. And so maybe it'd be helpful just to kind of take each one of those one by one and kind of work through them. Um, and so now that you kind of laid out the thesis here, and so the first one is um, what role does energy play in explaining the U.S. foreign policy towards the global energy market, and particularly in the Caspian, uh, Caspian Basin? Um, and it's, it's, it's a fascinating question because uh, on the American side of the equation, I think it's always hard for the Americans to understand how much energy and security is really influencing how we're doing things. I always try to say um, the, the ability to have the reserve currency <laughs> backs a lot of what we do as well. So what was kind of your thoughts on this and, and why lead with this question? 
Yeah, it's a very good question. Let me give you more information about the book. And if we concentrate it chapter by chapter, we can focus more in U.S. Uh, role of energy and energy export in U.S. policy toward the uh, global and it's mainly toward the Central Asia and Caspian Sea. Uh, the, the book uh, combines seven chapters, uh, the first and second chapter about the introduction and the, about the theoretical framework. The third chapter about the literature review, I uh, read about 700 papers, reports, and also made an interview with more than 100 uh, former U.S. ambassadors to the region, uh, an energy and foreign policy expert who works in the Washington-based think tanks, some professor from the Harvard and other universities, some European diplomats, and some diplomats from the region. In the uh, chapter four, I focused on the international context of energy geopolitics in the Caspian Sea, and I have to focus uh, energy policy and foreign policy of five coastal sea, I mean Russia, Iran, Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, and Azerbaijan, and also I try to find any interaction between uh, EU uh, uh, policy toward Caspian Sea, India, China, and uh, Finally, U.S. In the other chapter, in the uh, chapter five, I focused on George W. Bush energy administration, energy policy to energy diplomacy toward Caspian Sea. Another chapter, Obama administration. In the chapter six, Trump and Biden administration. And the chap chapter seven is conclu conclusion. What's the uh, role of energy in U.S. foreign policy? What's the uh, 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 shale gas revolution in U international relations? What's the shale gas revolution in EU? In I mean, U.S. foreign policy and U.S energy policy uh, and its relation with neighbors and also its relation with EU. About the uh, U.S. focus and U.S. interest uh, in uh, Central Asia and mainly in Caspian Sea, I have to say, as I mentioned during the Clinton administration and uh, after breakup of the Soviet Union, the U.S. tried to uh, help these countries try to rec they recover uh, their economy because they, they have a very, very good, bad condition, and also trying to uh, support EU because, as you know, Gazprom and Russia play monopoly and play an important role in EU uh, natural gas market. As you are now aware, EU as a US ally and US trying to support EU to diversification of energy resources and trying to find the alternative for Russian gas and natural gas, mainly from Azerbaijan, is one of the alternative and to uh, EU to decrease dependence of Russian foreign policy and also for uh, uh, energy uh, energy and um, new pipeline in the region uh, is a good uh, was a good opportunity to uh, US uh, energy uh, firms such as Exxon and Chevron to work in Kazakhstan and Azerbaijan oil field. Uh, US has own economic interest and also political and geopolitical interest. But during Obama administration, we uh, can f focus later. Uh, US lost its interest in the region and after shale gas revolution and after uh, Obama administration came to conclusion that US has to uh, withdraw its troops from the uh, region, especially from the Afghanistan. Central Asia, military bases in the Central Asia uh, lost its uh, uh, its value in U.S. foreign policy and U.S. energy diplomacy toward the region. And during uh, Trump administration, we saw such policy and Trump and Obama and also Bush uh, lost their interest. And mainly in, during Obama administration, the shale gas revolution, U.S totally lost in interest, just politically trying to support uh, energy transit pipeline from the region, from the EU market, and trying to uh, support uh, Kazakhstan, Azerbaijan, and uh, Turkmenistan as a uh, U.S. lie in the region. So explain to us how this part of the world 
and, and you can break it down into the, the, the different groups, how they view the Russian influence on the oil and gas uh, market. Because we had on a guest um, just recently talking about um, that you know, the EU perspective maybe not as concerned about Russian um, products. They'd rather pay the cheaper price and deal with Russia than import from the U.S. Um, how, do you, how do you think, by and large, some of these areas you've mentioned, you've covered a lot of different countries there, how do they feel about dealing with Russia? Because in the U.S., the Russian is a big boogeyman. Everyone should be scared of, but I don't get the sentiment that's the case worldwide. It's a, it's a great question. Thanks for asking. You know, uh, before Putin came to power, uh, Russia was a uh, great uh, weaker po position in the international relation and also in the region. When came to uh, you, uh, when Putin came to power, as you know, Putin held a PhD in economy, and his thesis topic was about the using uh, Russian hydrocarbon as a means of uh, leverage international uh, Russia foreign policy toward the global energy market. And when he came to power, tried to use energy export as a uh, leverage of its foreign policy toward the region in general and toward the EU in especially and it's not in favor of US and White House and the US tried to uh, find an alternative and also try to export LNG to EU to, uh, to balance Russia uh, uh, hegemony and Russia, uh, uh, Russia export to EU natural gas market. At the same time, uh, during Trump administration, U.S. play key uh, energy diplomacy, uh, as you know, by uh, March 2020, the oil price uh, decline was a very bad uh, development for U.S. energy companies, and Trump administration tries to help the companies to, to, uh, to help the economy and to uh, fo focus the situation for worker and energy industry. About the Russia, as I mentioned, uh, when came, uh, Putin came to power, Russia tried to play an important role in both LNG, natural gas, coal, and oil market. And it, as I mentioned, it, as a, the U.S. and Russia, we can contend as a superpower. Uh, any increase in exporting energy as a leverage of foreign policy, it's not in favor of the U.S. and U.S. try to create balance to um, more focus on energy market and more focus on international energy market to uh, decrease Russia's role in international relation and international uh, sphere. And one of the things that we're seeing is you have the, the Russian um, in, in their role, as you described, but you also have kind of I don't know if the rise of China is the right way to put it, but China's trying to, on some level, they've partnered with Russia on some things. There's a lot of people who are kind of confused over how good that relationship really can be. Um, but then you see China starting to cut deals with Iran. They're cutting deals with the Saudis. They're trying to invest in Aramco. Um, what are your thoughts on the Chinese-Russian relationship, A, and then B, how might that impact this area moving forward, an area that's been dominated by Russian influence for some time? Yeah, in chapter four, I focus on U.S. Uh, China foreign policy and China energy policy toward the Central Asia and Caspian Sea, and focus about China One Road One Belt project and the role of Central Asia in uh, completing One Road One Bo uh, Belt project. And this is uh, China investment in some poor countries such as Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan in the region. As you know, China using uh, energy. Uh, sorry. Uh, Debt policy and investing in uh, poor countries to uh, to uh, control their infrastructure. As you know, we have some cases in the Sri Lanka, uh, in uh, East Asia, and we have Kenya in the Africa. Uh, they use the U.S. 
China's debts, but where they are una unable to pay debts on time, and you China controlled their uh, infrastructure and ro railroads for 99 years, and uh, U.S. fears that China follows the policy in the region, especially toward the poor countries, as I mentioned before. And by 2014, I think China made a huge investment, about $50 billion in uh, all uh, Central Asia and Caspian Sea region uh, countries in their energy sector, oil and gas, and in infrastructure, and they also in agriculture sector. And the US, also Russia, following the China's all investment in the region. Uh, I, I, I'm sure, I'm sure, as you know, by 2018, the uh, status of Sea. Uh, uh, all five countries came together in Kazakhstan and they uh, confirmed the new legal status of Caspian Sea. Uh, Russia just uh, important. So the security in the region is important for both Russia and China. China just trying to increase their influence in economic sphere. Russia also just Russia main priority security in the region and Russia is fair about radicalism in the region who affect some minority living in Russia and also China. This in the security sphere, China is a great first power in the region. In economic sphere, China and as I mentioned, energy resources in the Central Asia and infrastructure could help to uh, China to operate and complete the one world one bill by coming years. So some of the people have uh, speculated that you know the U.S. should almost match kind of China's foreign investment um, with one with one belt one road or one road initiative. Um, I, I tend to disagree. I tend to think that uh, what the U.S. should do is the U.S. should allow its citizens and country uh, its companies to work internationally easier uh, through tax laws and stuff like that. Um, and we should encourage local nations to make their laws clearer and easier to understand so that you can attract smaller businesses to foreign countries to work there instead of trying to go with the one belt, one road model. Um, do you have a thought on how this will work? Because there is a fear in the West that China's influence is, is really gripping hold. And, and I actually wonder is China actually, by the way that these policies are rolling out, are they actually squeezing so hard that it's slipping through their hands? Yeah, you know, uh, during the uh, Obama administration and during Secretary Hillary Clinton, U.S. by 2011 uh, introduced uh, his initiative in New Silk Road and tried to introduce some project and try to uh, give some debt to these countries. But after uh, 2011, we cannot see such any major progress in this uh, initiative, and uh, U.S. Will, uh, was not, was unsuccessful to complete its initiative uh, in, in complete, but in, in complete, but uh, China war one built uh, as I as China has a huge national national financial resource it uh, gives an opportunity to China to focus in any country to invest in it but uh, as we can see uh, during Trump administration and also Biden administration China and uh, South China Sea is a chi uh, one of uh, US uh, foreign policy priority and US focus on uh, this uh, area and as i mentioned before uh, US lost China in uh, uh, sorry US lost his interest in the Caspian Sea and uh, Central Asia and i am uh, i'm not sure that uh, this, this administration and next administration uh, focus again of Central Asia and Caspian Sea and as in this area just China will be major actor in economic area and I think U.S. has to compare complete uh, with uh, China in other uh, region, not in Central Asia and Caspian Sea. Yeah, because, you know, China's western border 
Russia's southern border, they all are adjacent to various nations in this region. And so even though we can put the Uyghur issue aside and what might be going on there, they do have a population that is far more Caspian Sea region than they are Han Chinese. And so so with Russia, so they do, there's a lot more ethnic blend there. Uh, If you were to cross the border, you wouldn't be able to tell that you would necessarily change countries by the way people talk and act. Um, And so from the U.S. perspective, they are not only far geographically, but as far as some of the people that live in these countries, they're far from that as well. And that makes a difference whether we'd like to acknowledge it or not. That's just actually sometimes that is a barrier to overcome. Yeah, it's a very good uh, question, a good point, good point, as you mentioned. We have some uh, ethnic groups living in Russia and other Central Asia, and we have some Uyghurs, as you know, uh, living in the China, and the geographical location has a lot of natural resources China uh, government focused on. And as you know, we have some uh, camp, West, uh, and especially U.S. and EU are uh, uh, again at this camping. Some Uyghur uh, live in the Kazakhstan and Turkey and the Tajikistan, and they relatively live in the uh, China. And China is first the spread of uh, what they uh, say Islamic radicalism, and due to in some cases Russia and China following the same interests and trying to control the region. As I mentioned, security is the major uh, uh, concern for uh, China and security and also uh, economic uh, uh, were uh, belong to China. But uh, this major uh, power concern about the security and stability in the region, spread up radicalism and try try to exploit the hegemony in the region and absence of the U.S. is the great chance for both countries. So how, tell me, because this is, I'm asking now from ignorance here, so um, uh, answer is simpleton as you need. So how do these countries consider working together as a block? Is there a way that they, you can unify? Is it a lot of distrust? Is there a lot of similarities? Because when you have uh, you know these smaller nations being put pressure on by the US or China or Russia, there's sometimes they don't really have the ability to kind of stand up for themselves. They have to kind of go with the whim of the motion. But if they kind of unite together, occasionally they can kind of push back. Um, are they able to do that? Or is it pretty much every man for himself? How does it work out? Yeah, it's a very good point. You know, in the international relation, every country is just looking at its national interest and trying to create a balance in its relation with the neighbor in the great power. And also, in some case, they come to a uh, uh, conclusion to have to solve the problem with the uh, other major actors in the short term to gain more uh, benefit from the coalition. Uh, I'm not sure that China and Russia uh, uh, follow any uh, follow any mutual interest in the international relation, but in the, some cases, as I mentioned in the last question, in the Central Asia and Caspian Sea, maybe both countries follow the same policy and follow the same interest. But in the uh, international uh, relation, international sphere, I, I'm doubt about the both countries follow uh, the same policy and follow the same interest. We can focus on uh, Iran relation with the China, Iran relation with the Russia and the uh, JCPOA and the new. Uh, Vienna talk between U.S. and Iran over the solving the Iran and mis- Iran nuclear and missile program and Iran supporting proxy group in the region and Iran foreign policy. And we can see that uh, both China and the U.S. trying to uh, keep and in- increase their influence uh, in Iran foreign policy in the uh, long term and also trying to solve this problem because Iranian capability in nuclear and missile is not in favor and it's it is against this country's uh, all national interest and national security 
but in the, some cases in the Africa, China uh, and Russia policy is uh, is a difference. And uh, some in the, some countries, their investment is against uh, other countries' national interest. But in the as I mentioned before, in the Central Asia or Iran, they both following the same routes. But in the Africa or in the other Arab countries. Uh, Russia and uh, China has own interests and has own policy. And in the some cases, in some region, especially this country's national interest is different uh, uh, from other countries. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. I think that you know when you talk about um, you know, these areas, these geographic areas, it really takes almost have kind of a multitude of experts, and then kind of a big picture person, and then a narrow focus person because. It's, it's very hard. It's, 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 imagine taking the United States and saying, well, the U.S. feels this way about that. It's like, well, okay, well, maybe you know, the current administration does or a congressperson does, but it doesn't mean that I do. Um, and then uh, if you just take some, you know, whether they're uh, cultural issues or financial issues, you know, the U.S. has a lot of wide-ranging opinions. Well, now you're talking about countries and a lot of countries that are a lot close to each other. And it's really tough to kind of grasp how that shapes the way that you think about things sitting on the side of it from a superpowers perspective, which is where I sit at, right? I sit on the superpowers perspective. I don't sit on the non-superpowers perspective going, okay, wow, <laughs> if we make them mad, we could really be in trouble. And you brought up Iran, and this is, I think, really something that, that the U.S. Um, foreign policy gurus, wonks, whatever, need to think about, is it, they, they want to have influence in Iran. Okay, the only way that that will work out is if you had a new regime in Iran. The current regime is not going to bow down to the U.S. That's just not going to happen, which means that if the current regime stays in place, they are going to look to Russia or to China or to wherever else they can sell their oil and to sell it because they have they want to stay in power. And if China offers them the avenue to stay in power, they will look towards China um, to do energy deals like they did last September, August, whatever it was. So I, I think that it's, it's something that, that the U.S. foreign policy for so long. We almost had the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of exactly. mentality, right? And, and we, we've done that, and that's how we were with China, right? So we partnered with the Chinese because they were the enemy of the Russians, we thought, right? And so then it's like, well, oh, well, now China's the now China's the bad guy. It's like, well, okay, well, who's the enemy of China? Like, it, it, it's it's very it's very complex. But let's focus on Iran because um, it feels like to me right now the Iranians are moving as fast as they can um, with hesitation, I'm sure, level towards the Chinese, the way the Chinese are operating, the way the Chinese are buying, um, they probably would like the sanctions to be lifted so they can sell their oil at market value. But they are content to sell for below market value to the Chinese until the U.S. quits or, or something else happens. It's, that's, that's my read. What's your read? Yeah, yeah, very good point. You know, uh... I, I, I think during coming weeks or maybe coming weeks, uh, coming months, and especially during the new administration, Ibrahim Raisi, as you know, uh, two weeks ago elected uh, as a new president for four years, uh, U.S. and uh, Iran uh, maybe reach new deal, and after uh, new deal, just uh, I am trying to give more information about the oil and gas sector. Iran needs about twenty uh, uh, hundred billion uh, billion dollar investment uh, in oil and gas field to recover oil and gas production capacity, and also to uh, uh, increase oil and gas uh, export uh, uh, because uh, when 
New Deal reached, uh, and the they both Biden administration lifted sanctions over Iran energy sector, Iran will be able to export more oil. Exporting more oil need foreign financial capability and foreign high technology. Uh, as you know, Iran and Qatar shared a surplus field, and Iran uh, supply 70% of natural gas consuming from this field, and this this field, uh, this uh, huge field, uh, will be peak point by coming years and if Iran, Iran if cannot uh, attract fine high fine high technology from uh, Western companies mainly because Iran looks to uh, has such technology to uh, to prevent the pressure drop in this field uh, if this field point uh, reached a uh, peak point uh, the production capacity dramatically decreases every year, and Iran will be will not be able to supply gas to the domestic network. And Iran has to uh, import natural gas from other country. You know, Iran holds the second natural gas in the world, but if it cannot attract financial capability and technology, Iran has to import and get natural gas from the country. During last weeks, we have this Iran electricity grid shows power outage and Iran uh, signed a new agreement from Azerbaijan and Turkmenistan to import uh, electricity from this country. You know, Iran hold a great potential in renewable energy and also uh, Iran, as you know, just hold one nuclear power plant and also Iran has a very good dams to, uh, to generate electricity. Uh, if you focus to Iran and US and also from to China and Iran relation with China and uh, Russia, uh, Iran foreign policy uh, depends on ideological, but Russia, China foreign policy based on national interest. The problem is Iran trying to create balance in its relation with the West with increasing and boost relation with the, uh, China and Russia. If we've uh, noticed to uh, the last study released by Iran, Ministry of Economy of Iran to trade volume between Iran and China, Iran and Russia, both China and Russia trade volume in favor of these countries. And as you know, during sanction, China was major Iran oil buyer in gray market. And there is there is no official statistics in how much Iran send sell oil to China and how can they transfer money? As you know, uh, uh, SWIFT uh, is under sanction and Iran unable to have an international uh, transaction. We, if we uh, come to get, uh, come together and uh, to conclusion, uh, this situation just in favor of Russia and China. Russia, China, uh, Russia has a. Uh, chance to increase influence in Iran foreign policy. China also has a uh, chance after U.S. withdrawal from uh, Afghanistan uh, to influence in the region and also tr try to uh, influence in Iran foreign policy. And China and Russia companies after relifting sanction has a good uh, chance to invest in all Iran infrastructure, mainly energy and rail and uh, railroad, but uh, also European uh, firms, but the problem is, I think the real problem, uh, U.S. is looking on uh, economic interest in Iran. Iran is a uh, consumer market. Mo uh, Iran holds uh, more than 85 million people. Every mm -hmm. countries, every company is looking to have own share and stake in Iran market because Iran has a good potential for every country and for every uh, 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 company. Yeah, so that's a fascinating point. And one of the things I thought about when you're talking to that is uh, we talk about the Chinese and the Russian influence. The Chinese, by and large, 
they seem, like you say, they're going to do their own nat- national interest. Now, I do think on some level that they do things to kind of stick it to the U.S. from time to time. But by and large, if they want to work with Iran or Iraq or you know, North Korea, they're going to do it. And then um, you know, that, that's just what they're going to do. The U.S. doesn't necessarily operate that way. So when you look at the Chinese influence in the Middle East, they'll do a deal with Iran and then they'll do a deal with the Saudis. And they're going to say, if you guys can't get along, that's your own problem. (laughs) That's your own problem. Whereas the U.S. won't operate that way necessarily. So might that kind of um, purchase of large oil contracts, natural gas, potentially reinvestment into fields, how might that change how energy policy is considered from OPEC and these nations? Because the Chinese are kind of agnostic. They're like, we've got... Billions of people to take care of. We need your product. You work out your problems yourself. Yeah, as you mentioned, Iran and uh, China last um, uh, last March signed a 25-year strategic agreement. And during this agreement, uh, China is going to uh, be major uh, supplier for technology and also major supplier for financial capability for major projects in the Iran, mainly in the oil and gas sector, and also will be major buyer of Iranian oil. As you know, Saudi Arabia pl- uh, Saudi Arabia playing key energy diplomacy in the uh, China and made huge investment in China infrastructure and raffinery. And this all, all OPEC member and all major uh, procedure in natural gas, LNG and oil, trying to be prepared for safe, uh, for safe, for, uh, uh, for, uh, for post-corona period and trying to keep their share market in the present and also trying to increase uh, share in the coming year because as you know we uh, after vaccination in all countries we have seen some uh, sign for recovery in the economy if economy goes uh, well uh, we need more uh, oil and gas and this is a good chance for every country to export oil and gas and to recover their economy as well uh, uh, china in the uh, gcc countries and the iran following is the same uh, policy but uh, but in, in uh, different means in Saudi Arabia, trying to uh, uh, invest in uh, Saudi uh, new projects and Neom City, as you know, Neom Smart City is a huge project. Uh, I think it's value $500 billion. And China is, was, China is a one of major uh, supplier for technology and investment. And also, uh, Saudi Arabia uh, is a one of major buyer of Ch- uh, China jewelry and other uh, high tech. Uh, 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 high-tech uh, goods and also uh, uh, the security of the routes with China import oil and gas it's uh, related to China energy security and national security and also the, by uh, three decades ago and during going oil policy China supported uh, national and private companies to go to the region with China, China import oil and gas and invest there and also Chinese uh, some military and mainly Navy uh, uh, Navy trying to focus the region that China uh, energy diplomacy depend on and as you know China has some uh, military base in Djibouti and trying to increase and has a new basis in the GCC countries and Persian Gulf and it's not uh, it's it's against these countries uh, and also US uh, national interest in the region. I think China trying to uh, focus this region because, you, as I mentioned, U.S. foreign policy priorities that China and uh, so China see China and Russia trying to uh, create balance between this area and that area. Okay, let's do a couple of rapid fire here questions. Um, so, give me the biggest misconception about 
this part of the world that you get, the Caspian Sea area, what's the biggest misconception that someone who hasn't studied the area that they might bring into it? And you go, no, 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 don't think about it like this. Think about it like this. Yeah, uh, in the Western, Western media and the Western academia, uh, there is a perception that this country is people just uh, trying to sell oil and trying to in, uh, trying to just sell oil and they ha hold a huge reserve of oil and gas and uh, hydrocarbon trying to sell and they do not have a killer plan for development and try, and they have no clear yeah. idea about the future. But as I'm following the last development and mainly in the UAE and also in the Saudi Arabia and Qatar and also other GCC countries and other Arab countries, this country is trying to focus on energy transition in the uh, some uh, 20 year and 50 year and 10 years for, uh, program, trying to invest in renewable energy, trying to invest to uh, some uh, raffinery and also in, as you know, Aramco uh, invest in uh, some raffinery in Texas and other countries. China, Aramco invest in Pakistan, India, and uh, China as a for a major buyer. And also Qatar Petroleum trying to increase the share of uh, LNG in the oil market and also in LNG and natural gas market. I think some countries trying to uh, 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 conclusion that we have to uh, uh, diversify oil uh, revenue and by exporting more not just oil and gas, exporting some rough, uh, rough, uh, petrochemical product and also investing in uh, trying to prepare the good spare for attracting foreign uh, technology and foreign financial. As you know, as, as by 2030, Saudi Arabia under Ben Salman trying to be center of the center of the uh, uh, financial uh, investment from the uh, EU and from the China and many maybe from the Russia and uh, from the US and also uh, uh, UAE as the way trying to invest more uh, capital from the region. I think this country is uh, not just focused on the oil and gas, trying to uh, diversify in economic, trying to recover economy, not depending on the oil and gas, trying to uh, focus, focus in diversifying the economy and revenue from other resources rather than exporting natural gas, oil, and LNG. Okay, um, I want to talk about 2050, you know, all the benchmarks of these countries. That my prediction by 2050 is that the world economy will be far more open and easier to transact by 2050 than any of us can possibly imagine. As we go through these changes on energy transition or sanctions in China and Russia, I actually suspect that we're heading towards a period of more peer-to-peer um, -peer or per, uh, small business small business ability to transact the way the ch supply chains are set up and are going to be revamped post-COVID. <laughs> um, I actually think by 2050, my podcast listeners will be able to do business with people in the Caspian Sea area far easier than they, they ever thought imagined. What do you think about that? Yeah, it's a very good uh, point. Thanks. If any country in the region, Central Asia, Caspian Sea, GCC, and in the in, in short, MENA, Middle East, and North Africa, uh, did not follow their uh, new regulation by Paris Agreement and did not focus on energy transition and the uh, decrease of uh, uh, green gas emission, and also try did not focus on, uh, as I mentioned, Paris Agreement. In the coming year, by uh, as you mentioned, 2015, uh, I, uh, I think we have... Uh, it's there. Uh, we can expect that the hegemony of this, some of this country who not follow the, this development, we cannot see some hegemony and some countries maybe, uh, how can I say, uh, we cannot see some country because we have seen migration due to climate change and uh, uh, climate change, mainly in this area, we have water shortage in these countries. If 
these countries did not focus on uh, high techs to uh, solve the water problem and did not follow the energy transition and also uh, uh, Paris Agreement. Uh, we can see many uh, dramatic development in this country and in some uh, small country in the region, both Central Asia, Caspian Sea, and in the uh, GCC and MENA. Oops, sorry, mute there. Okay, um, so where can people, they will link to the book. The book again is called The U.S. Energy Diplomacy in the Caspian Sea Basin, Changing Trends Since 2001. Um, you're also active, I believe, on Twitter and LinkedIn. Is there anything else, anywhere else we point people to to find you if they want to find out more about your work? Yeah, uh, you know, uh, at present I am working in energy transition in Iran and in the U.S. as a book chapter and uh, some editor working on the book project and will be published by the next year. As you mentioned, I am uh, uh, consulting with international and national media and national uh, energy and foreign policy think tank and about the, what's going on in the region. Uh, after the PhD in the postdoctoral, I am focused on energy transition and uh, at present mainly about the Iran and the Russian relation, Iran and the U.S. relation and the Iran and the New Deal and about the, my book. I just wanted to show the, the book for your uh, yes. yes. Yeah, this book. And uh, this is the first book in the world which published about U.S. energy diplomacy. As I mentioned, it's not just about energy diplomacy regarding Caspian Sea. It's about the U.S. Uh, foreign policy and the role of energy in U.S. foreign policy, shale gas revolution, uh, Trump administration, maximum, uh, maximum pressure policy, the role of shale gas in U.S. foreign policy, the role of shale gas revolution in international relations, and the role of shale gas revolution in Obama administration and Trump administration sanctions toward Iran energy sector. And as I mentioned, this is the first book which published uh, in this topic. And this is, uh, I, when I worked for five years in writing this book, and as I mentioned, interview with 100 uh, diplomat, uh, bureaucrat, Mm -hmm. and uh, ambassador and also uh, foreign and energy policy analysts read more than 1,000 1, paper report and news uh, in English, in Turkish, in Persian, and in Arabic, and that's it. Well, the, another thing is, if you are a Kindle reader, you can rent the book for a period of time on Kindle for a substantial discount. You can buy it outright. Go ahead and buy it outright. I'm not suggesting that, but I'm saying if you go, it's, it's, a, it's kind of more of a textbook feel to it, right? Yeah. Uh, and so if you say, okay, well, listen, I don't have the budget. You can actually get on Kindle for a discount um, if you rent it for you know a month or two months or whatever it is. So be sure to check out that option as well if you are a Kindle reader. Thank you for doing this. We've been talking about this for a few months now. It's great to finally get you on, um, and you are so knowledgeable about all this stuff. It's, it's always great to talk to someone who actually knows what they're talking about, unlike me who pretends to know what I'm talking about. So it's, it's quite great. Yeah, thanks for having me. And for the uh, last word, I just uh, devote this book in loving memory of my parents. Yeah. and. Uh, yeah. And, why, why the parents? Yeah. Thank you. Explain and, that. Yeah. No, thank go, you. go ahead and pack why you, you, you did for your parents as well. Yeah. 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 Thank That's you. And I hope to have the new book by next year. As I mentioned this year, I am writing two book chapter and I'm planning to have new book about energy transition uh, next year. Okay. Well, thank you so much. And I hope your parents are very proud of you and the work that you did. I, um, I'm glad you mentioned all of the background work because um, I usually ask authors to take the victory lap to talk about all that they did the process because um, most people, when you write a substantial book like you did, which is not a flip it, hey, how to close a sale in 20 days or you know, how to make yourself better. It's a substantial 
scholarly type effort that you went through. Um, that's a lot of work, a lot of research, a lot of cutting, a lot of adding, a lot of trying to weave multiple languages. So I'm glad you got that out there. And I hope your parents are, are very proud of the work that you did. Um, best of luck and look forward to your next book. Thank you. Uh, thanks for having me and stay safe.